You see a, a title of a sermon that says, Ordinances That Affect Us All. And uh, when you think about that word ordinance, probably one of the first things you think about is a city ordinance. And uh, we got fire ordinances, city ordinances, all of those. But we're not going to talk about that. We're going to talk about ordinances that are found in the, in the Bible. And there are two ordinances, and uh, ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper. And the word ordinance is a word that means ordained. And so we say it's an ordinance if it's ordained by Jesus. And so as you study the Scriptures, you look for things that God, that Jesus commanded us to do, things that that he shared with his followers and said, these are things that you need to do. There are also acts that you look at that in the letters uh, that the apostles have written and uh, that they encourage the churches to do. And then when you look in the book of Acts itself, They were uh, things that were done in the churches in the book of Acts. You put all of those together, and the two ordinances that we have are baptism and the Lord's Supper. And today, we get to really participate in both. You saw the seven people that were baptized. That was one ordinance. And then as we close our service, we will be participating in the Lord's Supper. And... uh, what I want you to keep in mind is when you hear baptism, Lord's Supper, and if you're a Southern Baptist and you've been a member of this church for a while, it's almost like you think you can put your brain in neutral and just say, hey, I know this. But the reason I entitled it Ordinances That Affect Us All is that oftentimes we just take these things for granted. They become too familiar with us. I want us to look at it in a light in which we need to keep in mind these two ordinances affect us all. All, every person that's in here is affected by these ordinances. And let's walk through them and we will explain that. The very first thing I want us to look at is look at baptism. And as we look at baptism, I think the first thing we need to understand is the requirements for believers' baptism. We had seven people that were baptized up there. Why were they baptized up there? What are the requirements for baptism? Well, let me tell you first of all, it is they must be a believer in Jesus Christ. It's believer's baptism. You must be a believer in Jesus Christ. It means you've come to a point in your life when you understand that Jesus died on the cross for your sins and that he was then buried and three days later was raised from the dead. And he conquered sin, he conquered death, and you want to receive him into your life. You repent of your sins, ask for forgiveness of your sins, and receive this gift of Christ in your heart. And we get this from Acts chapter 2. And in Acts chapter 2 when uh, is what is called Pentecost. Jesus is risen uh, from the dead and he's ascended to heaven. And the uh, apostles and uh, the new church, about 120 people are gathered together. And they're filled with the Holy Spirit. And they go out and they begin to preach. And they preach at what we know as Pentecost. And as they began to preach, uh, and Peter is God's main spokesperson. And he speaks God's word. 3,000 people uh, come to make decisions for Christ. But as he preaches the gospel, it's interesting it says here, it says, now when they heard this, when they heard the gospel, that their sins is what put Christ on the cross, they were cut to the heart and they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? I've heard this gospel message. What's my next step? And this is what he says, repent and be baptized. Repent, repent of your sins, ask for forgiveness of your sins, and you ask Christ to come into your heart, and then your next step of obedience is to be baptized. Every one of you in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, and you receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. 
And then their response was this. And it says afterwards that uh, all of them made their decision. It says those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. So the requirement for being baptized is to make a decision for Christ, is to turn from your sins, ask Christ to come into your heart. So that's the first thing. All seven of those people did that. But let me tell you the second, and that is that baptism always follows your salvation experience. It follows your salvation experience. The New Testament order, you believe and then you are baptized because it symbolizes the cleansing and the changing of what Christ has done in your life because you put your faith and trust in him. You believe first and then you're baptized. You don't get it turned around. Now, this is why, as Southern Baptists, that we do not believe in infant baptism. And we get this question. Because there are some uh, who've, who've uh, had parents that, that baptized a child as an, as an infant. And they say, well, why don't, why don't you all believe in that? Well, the reason that we don't is because baptism follows salvation. And salvation is a personal decision that you make. You have to come to an understanding of your own sin. You have to come to an understanding of who Jesus is and what he did for you on the cross. You have to understand really what salvation means, what I'm being saved from, what I'm being saved to, and then also what it means to be a disciple of Christ, to take those next steps, to live for him. All of that, when you come to understand that and you make that decision, you then are baptized you not baptize first and then believe. And so infants, when they are, are baptized, they don't know who Jesus is. They don't have a personal choice in the matter at all. This is something more that their parents have done. Now, really, from that standpoint, what parents are doing is when they have a child baptized is, is hoping that one day that they can raise them up in the Lord and that there'll come a time when that person will make that decision for Christ. But when that time comes, that they need to make their own decision and take that step of baptism. There's a great verse found in Colossians. And in Colossians chapter 2, it says, For you were buried with Christ when you were baptized. And it's talking about how you're baptized. You're buried with Christ and baptized. And with him you were raised to new life. Here's the key. Because you trusted the mighty power of God. Because you trusted the mighty power of God. This is why you were baptized, is because you trusted the mighty power of God. You had to make your decision first, and then you were baptized. Baptism always follows salvation. So I need to make a decision of Christ, then I need to be baptized. Well, we talk about infant baptism, but let me kind of take that a little bit a step further. There's some people who made decisions as children, and you really didn't understand what it meant to be saved may have been peer pressure. Uh, it may have been, hey, a brother or sister did that, so I'm going to do that. And, uh, and you made that decision. But then later on in life, you understood that when you were baptized as a child, that you really didn't understand. And you, it was really not a salvation point in your life. So later in life, you make this decision and you receive Christ as, as Savior. Then you say, well, what do I do now? Well, baptism always follows salvation. So that's when you come back and say, I've made a decision for Christ. I want to be baptized. When I was baptized, when I was a young child, 
All I did was get wet because it was not following my salvation. So each individual has to make this decision. And this is why ordinance affects us all. Because I can't look in your life and in your eyes and say, now, when you were seven and you were baptized, was that, was that real or was that not? You have to make that own decision. Now, I made a decision for Christ when I was eight. I was baptized uh, three months later when I was nine. And, uh, and there's no question. I know that I received Christ at that time. Now, when I was an eight or nine-year-old, my understanding of sin was about this big, okay? Now, at my age, my understanding of sin is about this big. And I understand there are times I've messed up, done things wrong, and all of a sudden, what happens is people begin to understand sin more, and they say, oh, gosh, I'm more of a sinner than I realize. Apparently, I wasn't saved back then. No. If you understand what it means to be lost, ask Christ to come into your heart, you can be saved. Jesus says, come to me as a child, childlike faith. You can be saved. And then what happens is, as we get a little bit older and, and we learn more about, about life, we have these tendencies to think, oh, no, maybe I wasn't saved. No, that's not always true. The vast majority, you were. But there are some, and we've had them. I've had them counsel in my office, and we've seen them in the church that said, no, my salvation experience came at a later time. Well, if that ever happened, if you want to be obedient to God, then you take that step of baptism because it always follows salvation. Baptism follows salvation. So second of all, what is the mode of baptism? We believe that the mode of believer's baptism is immersion. And just as you saw today, all seven went under and they all came back up. So we were seven for seven. Usually we lose one, but no, just kidding. Uh, they all made it. So you say, why do we say it is by immersion? Well, the reason is there's a number of reasons. First of all is because the Greek, the, the New Testament was written in Greek. And when you look at there, the Greek word for baptism, whenever you read the word baptism or baptize, it is a word baptizo, which means to dip or to immerse. It's what the word means. In both non-Christian literature and in the Bible, every time uh, this word baptizo is used, it means to be able to plunge or to sink or to immerse someone. Now, in that same Greek language, there are words for sprinkle and words for pour. It's just that they're never used in reference to baptism. The second is that in the New Testament, the use of the word baptism indicates immersion. The use of the word. Whenever you read through the New Testament, you see baptism, it always indicates immersion. In Mark chapter 1, verse 10, it says that when Jesus was baptized, he came up out of the water. That's pretty strong. John chapter 3, verse 23, and it talks about John the Baptist. He was also baptizing in Enon and near Salem because water was plentiful there, and people were coming and being baptized. Water was, <clears throat> was plentiful if you're not going to immerse, you don't need a lot of water. But because they were immersing and there were a lot of people coming, they needed water to be plentiful. In Acts chapter 8, it's a story about Philip and this Ethiopian eunuch. And the Ethiopian eunuch is traveling uh, sort of through the desert. And all of a sudden, there's Philip. And he, he reaches him and he says, can you help me? He says, I'm reading something from the scrolls. It's in Isaiah chapter 53. And he's talking about a suffering servant. Can you explain it? And Philip then explained to him the gospel. 
and explained to him who the suffering servant was. It was Jesus, and Jesus had been crucified. He died for our sins. He'd been raised from the dead. He ascended to heaven, and he talked to him about that salvation, and he talked to him about baptism. And then in verse 36, in chapter 8 of verse 36, the Ethiopian eunuch, as they're traveling along, says, see, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? Here's water. What prevents me from being baptized? And then it says that he and Philip went down into the water, and after he's baptized, he then came up out of the water. Now, if it wasn't immersion, he didn't need to find a body of water. He could have just taken water from a canteen or a carrier or whatever and have sprinkled or poured on him. But he said, see, here's, here's water. I want to be baptized. So it is by immersion. And then number three is this. Immersion best pictures the symbolism of baptism, a union with Christ in his death burial, and resurrection. Immersion best pictures the symbolism of baptism, a union with Christ in his death, his burial, and his resurrection. In Romans chapter 6, verses 3 and 4, this is what it says, do you not know that all of us who've been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too may walk in a newness of life. Now, look at that. What it says is baptism symbolizes what happens, what happened in the death, burial, and resurrection. You saw those people up there. When they stood there, it was a great picture that they'd asked Christ to come into their heart. And it's also a picture of the fact that Christ came And he came to earth and he lived a sinless life. But then he died on a cross and was buried. That's when you go under the water. But then it says three days later he was raised from the dead. And then he's raised up. And then it says that there was a newness of life. There's this ascension to heaven. And what happens with the individual is when they go under and they come out, they then walk out of the baptistry, which is a picture of a new life in Christ that they're going to be living. And so it's a great symbolism of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And even in the ascension, as he moves forward and as we move forward in our lives, this is baptism. So what are the reasons for baptism? So why should you get baptized? Well, here are the reasons. First of all, you want to follow the example of Jesus Christ. Follow the example of Jesus Christ. In Matthew 3, 13 through, uh, 13 through 17 is the story of Jesus' baptism. And Jesus was baptized, not because he was a sinner, he was sinless. But what he wanted to do is he wanted to identify with the sinners that he came to save. And so while John the Baptist is baptizing, there's this long line of sinners who want to repent of their sins and get a baptism of repentance. And here is Jesus, the sinless son of God, who steps over and he gets in line with all the other sinners because he wants to identify with them. And he says, these are the people I'm coming to die for. And so he, as the son of God, was baptized. So we want to follow the example of Christ. But then second of all, we want to personally identify with the person of Jesus Christ. We want to personally identify with the person of Jesus Christ. The verse that we just read in Romans chapter 6 talks about that like we're baptized into his death. So we want to personally identify with him to say, Lord... I need you in my life. As you died on the cross for me, I need, I want to die to you. 
as you were raised from the dead, I want your spirit to live within me. I want to identify with you, identify with your death, with your resurrection. I want to identify with the person of Christ. And when you identify with the person of Christ, it means that you need him. You need him for your life. You need him to live every day. And so by me being baptized, it's a beautiful picture of me saying, I want to be in union with Christ. I want to identify with the person of Jesus Christ, and I'm going to need him in my life to help me make it through every area of my day and of my life. Then number three is this, to obey the commands of Jesus Christ, to obey the commands. The last thing he told his disciples was that they were to go into all the world, and one of the things they were to do is they were to baptize. Look in Matthew 28, 19. Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. He told his followers that this is what they were to do. They were to be obedient to him. And so if we're going to be obedient, then we need to follow him in baptism. He said it's not a requirement for salvation. It is a step of, of obedience. Once you've made a decision for Christ, he then says, I want you to follow in baptism. I want you to follow the example of Jesus. I want you to identify with Jesus. I want you to do this out of obedience to go and to be baptized and to see what it means to, to that union, that sim, symbolism of that union with Christ. But now, nowhere in Scripture does it say that you have to be baptized to be saved. Bab salvation stands on its own. Salvation by grace, the grace of God, through faith. So through your faith, you accept this grace gift of God. You ask Christ to come into your heart. There is salvation. You don't have to do anything else. Baptism is not an addition to be saved. Uh, it says in Ephesians chapter 2, in Ephesians chapter 2, it says, It is for by grace that you have been saved through faith. This is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Not by works. That means there's nothing that can be added to it. It is only through salvation. And there are some that, that would think that, oh, you've got to be, you've got to make a decision for Christ and be baptized in order to be saved. But that's completely opposite of what Scripture's teaching. You would be adding on to what Jesus has done. You would be looking at the cross and saying, hey, Jesus, I appreciate you dying on the cross and, 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 uh, and suffering for six hours, but I realize that that's not enough because unless I decide to be baptized, I can't be saved. No, that was enough. What Christ did, Jesus paid it all. And when we receive him as Savior, the very next thing we want to do is be obedient and say, you died for me. I want you to come into my heart. I want you to be obedient. What do I need to do? He says, well, let me tell you the first thing I want you to do. I want you to be baptized. I want you to take that step of obedience and to be baptized. And this is um, the final reason for why you need to be baptized is exactly what happened with these seven here. You publicly testify that you are following Jesus Christ. You publicly testify that you are following Jesus Christ. I'm always um, surprised when people will say, uh, my faith or my religion is personal. It's a personal thing. And um, so I don't really want to talk much about it. 
and uh, it's just a private thing. There is nothing in Scripture that says that our relationship with Christ is a private thing. In the Sermon on the Mount, early on in chapter 5, Jesus says, you are the light of a world. You're the light of the world. He says we have a dark world, you're a light in a world. Now, if you think that religion is just to be a private, personal thing, I want you to do this for me. I want you to go home and tonight when it's just pitch black dark, I want you to be in a room that's totally dark and I want you to take a flashlight or any kind of light and turn it on. And then I want you to look at that light and say, how private is that light right now? Are you just being private? Is it just, no, what it does is it begins to shine. It just illuminates a dark room. You can't, you can't hide that light. I mean, there it is. And so when Jesus says you're to be the light of the world, he says, your relationship with Christ, your decision to receive Christ, this is not just something where you say it's just a personal matter. I don't want to talk to anybody about my faith. No, you want to publicly testify that Christ is Lord of your life. And what a baptism is, it's that public testimony. Those seven people that were up there being baptized, each time they stood there, they were being a public testimony to everyone here, I've made the decision to receive Christ as Savior. Praise the Lord. And he says, we need to make that at public. It's a public testimony. Now, uh, the best way I've always heard it is, is kind of like a wedding ring. And uh, what happens is, is when you get married, there's a ceremony that takes place. And in that ceremony, you exchange vows of love and commitment with each other. And then at the end of it, the minister says that uh, I now pronounce you husband and wife. And by the power invested in me and the laws of the state of whichever state you're in, I now declare that you are husband and wife. You may kiss the bride, okay? And so when that happens, they're married. In the midst of that ceremony, there was an exchange of rings. And when they exchange the rings, what the rings show is that it's a testament that you're married. Now, you take the ring off, and you're going to do some yard work, it doesn't mean all of a sudden you're not married because your ring's off, right? It was the ceremony that made you married. And so when you made your decision for Christ, that's where you became adopted into the family of God. That's when you became a child of God. But then when you do baptism, it's like putting on the ring, and it's letting the whole world know that Christ is Lord of your life. It doesn't save you. But it lets them know that you're proud of him and that you want to follow him in baptism. Now, when you think about this, you think about this ordinance of baptism, how does it affect us all? It affects all of us. Because whenever you see baptism, it makes you stop and think, what does baptism mean? And it's a reminder that Jesus died on the cross for our sins, was baptized, and was raised to give us a hope of eternal life. And to realize that every one of us has to make that decision as to whether we want to accept him or reject him. You know, the gift is there. God has already done everything that needs to be done, and he has this incredible gift, and he lays it right out there for us, and we got to make the decision. Do you accept that gift or do you reject the gift? And so every time you see baptism, you've got to think about, am I accepting the gift? Am I rejecting the gift? Which way am I going to go on there? Now, for some of you, you've got to ask this question. Are you saved? Have you already made a decision for Christ? Some of you can say yes, but I've never been baptized. Now, I would encourage you to say today that 
I want to make that decision to be baptized. I want to be obedient to what God has called me to do. And I want to be a public testimony to others of what Christ has done in my life. So are you saved? But maybe you're not, not baptized. For some, you can say, well, I was baptized, but it was before I was saved. You probably want to, you want to get that in order. And you're the only one that knows that. And to know where you stand in that. But if it's something you've been struggling with and God's been speaking to you of saying, you know, your salvation came after that baptism, you want to get those in order. He said, I want to be obedient to Christ. I want to do what God's called me to do. Every one of us has to look at these questions and see where do we stand there. And there's some of you here that may say, well, Danny, none of that applies to me because I've never made that decision. I've never received Christ as Savior. Well, I would invite you today to make that decision. Invite you today to say, I'm ready. I'm ready to trust my life to Christ. The Son of God that died on the cross for my sins offers me eternal life, offers his Holy Spirit to come and live inside my life. Man, I want to want that. I want to accept that incredible gift that God has for me. And I'm tired of the life I've been living, and I'm tired of carrying around this unforgiveness of these sins. I want all that to be taken care of. And it says that God will do this. You have that opportunity to do that. And so it's my prayer today that is before we leave this, this service, that you would pray and ask him to come into your heart. That's the ordinance of baptism. And we've seen that and participate in it. We're going to close our service with the ordinance of Lord's Supper. And we think about the Lord's Supper. If you've got your Bible, real quick, I want you to turn to Matthew chapter 26. Matthew chapter 26. And we're going to start in the 26th verse. Matthew 26, starting in the 26th verse. There was a feast called Passover. And at this feast of Passover, it was a remembrance of what took place long time ago. What's recorded in the Old Testament of when the children of Israel were in captivity in Egypt. And, and they cried out to God. And God raised up a man, Moses, to be his instrument to help lead the children out of Israel. But Pharaoh would not give in. He was not going to let them go. And so God sent plague after plague after plague. And finally, he sent the final plague. And it's what we call his Passover, is that he told the children of, of Israel to, to take an animal and to kill a spotless animal and take the blood of that animal and put the blood on the doorpost and then to stay in their homes that night because the death angel was going to come over all of Egypt. And as it came over Egypt, if it saw blood on the doorpost, it would pass over that house and it would, uh, and it would save those in the household. But those that did not have the blood over there, then the death angel would take the firstborn. And so the firstborn throughout all of Egypt were taken that day, were killed that day. But those in Israel who put the blood over the doorpost, the door, death angel passed over them. And then God told Moses, write these down, and every year you are to remember this. And so at the feast of the Passover, they would have a meal and a special meal. And at that special meal, Jesus, just hours before he was to be arrested, gave them some interpretation of some of the elements, some symbolism there for them to always remember. And he says this in verse 26. Now, as they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to the disciples. And he said, take eat, this is my body. And he took up a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink of it, all of you, 
For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. When you come here for the Lord's Supper, I want you to remember three things. First of all, that it symbolizes Christ's death. It symbolizes Christ's death. He took the bread, represented his sinless life. He broke it, which represented the, the pain and the uh, beatings that he would experience, and then the six hours of hanging on the cross. And he said, my body's being broken for you. Every time you take that bread and you break the bread, I want you to think about my body that was broken for you. Then he took the cup, and he says, this represents the blood of a new covenant, my blood being shed for your sins and for the sins of, of everyone. He said, remember this. So the bread represent the broken body. The cup represent his blood that was spilled out for the forgiveness of sins. So we see that we, it symbolizes Christ's death. But then second of all, it reminds us that Christ is coming again. And, you know, whenever you take the Lord's Supper, we do focus a lot on what he did on the cross. But he also wants us to remember that he's coming back again. And he's coming back in a victorious way. He said in verse 29, I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And in, in Corinthians, it says that every time he, that we take of it, we're to remember about his death and that one day he's coming back again. But this is where it comes home for you and me. When I said the ordinance that affects us all, this is the reason. Because it calls for self-examination. It calls for self-examination. So in just a moment, when we pass the elements, every one of us is to examine our lives. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 27 through 28 says this. He says, so anyone who eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord unworthily is guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. That is why you should examine yourself before eating the bread and drinking the cup. Examine yourself. And that's why before we um, partake, we always have a time of prayer. And then while the elements are passed, we ask you to just, you and the Lord, to do examination of your own life. So as we get ready to zero in on, um, on partaking of the Lord's Supper, this is my challenge. If you're a believer, I want you to examine your life and examine where you stand with the Lord. And if there are things that need to get asked for forgiveness, if there are things that need to be lifted up, to be right in a good relationship with him, I would ask that just in those moments, you spend those with the Lord. There's nothing else going on. This is it. It's just you and the Lord. And for those who said, I've never made this decision for Christ, in just a moment, when we pass the elements, uh, this is strictly for those who are believers. So I would ask you to take the tray and just continue passing it. But I'd like for you to be thinking about what we have talked about. And that the greatest thing that could happen today is for you to make that decision to receive Christ as your Savior and to say, I want to be a part of God's family. I want to enjoy all that we've been talking about, and I want to be able to get that forgiveness of my sins and to live for Christ in my life. So I'm going to ask our ushers uh, to come at this time and those who are going to help us as we uh, distribute the elements. 
And to let you know that for all of you that are, uh, that if you're here today and, and you're not a member of our church, that if you're a believer in Christ, you can participate in this. We're all a part of the family of God. We're thankful for you to be here. And we encourage you that as the elements are passed, take the element and just hold on to it. And then as everyone is served, I'll give us instructions for how we will uh, take part in the elements. And for those who have not made decisions for Christ, just as I said, may God speak to your heart during this time and uh, just be able, just think about the things that we've talked about and pray for God's Spirit to speak to your heart. So let me lead us in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, I uh, thank you so much for the ordinances that, uh, that your Son has given us. And I thank you for baptism and for what it means. And I rejoice with the seven who've made those, they made that decision today and, and were baptized. And Lord, as we partake of the Lord's Supper, it draws our focus to the cross. And we are so thankful that your Son was willing to give of his life so that we could be your children and that we could have a life of purpose and that we could live this life on earth as you desired us to live, giving you honor and giving you glory. And then to know that when that day comes, when we step out of this world, that we step into your arms and we spend eternity with you. And Father, you have provided all of this. There's nothing that we could have done on our own, but you've provided all of this for us and it's as a gift and you've placed it before us. And Lord, for those that are here today who see that gift in front of them, I pray they wouldn't leave today leaving the gift on the table. But they would receive it and they would accept it. And then they would pray and Father, just pray, they could pray something like this of saying, Dear Lord Jesus, I know that I'm a sinner and ask you to forgive me of my sins and ask your son to come into my life to take control of my life to be the leader in my life and thank you Lord for answering my prayer for saving me from my sins and giving me the hope of eternal life and to know that one day when I die I'll spend eternity in heaven. So I pray for those, Lord, today that have prayed that prayer that you would assure them as your Holy Spirit comes into their life and help them start life anew. But for us as believers, let this be a time of examination. Look into our hearts. Help us to be very honest with you. It may be a sweet time between our Heavenly Father and your children. For it is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Scriptures tell us that um, when they had that Passover meal, just as we had read, that um, when they came to that point with the bread, Jesus took it and he broke it. And he told them that this bread represents my body, which will be broken for you, and then asked them to eat that bread. It was a uh, pretty lengthy meal, and there was a lot of discussion that would go on during a, during a dinner 
But near the end of the meal, there was a, a time of taking the cup. And when they took the cup, he told them that this cup represented uh, the blood of a new covenant. And this is the blood that was going to be shed by Jesus on the cross and the blood that covers all the sins, the sins of those and the sins for all of us. And he says this represents a new covenant, a new agreement between God and man.